The text for today's message is Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13, where we read, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, people love the message of change. People love to hear that this needs to change or that needs to change. This system isn't working for us. We need someone to do this for us. And almost all political candidates feed on this desire for change when running for office. We love to look around and see all the things around us that need to be changed. Things that need to be changed to make our lives better to make lives better for our children. But far too often, we don't look right here inside ourselves. I remember back when, I think it was his first time running for office, Obama, he was running and I remember looking at a political cartoon that struck me and I tried to find it, but I couldn't. But the gist of the cartoon was this. There's a large crowd gathered at a political rally and there's a speaker there and the message he's talking about is change. You might have a sign. There's people in the audience with with signs for change. People are loving it. They're holding their signs. They're wearing their shirts that say change. But then one of these people with this this change sign in his hand and he's excited at the rally, he's asked if, if, if he needs to change. And the answer is no, I don't need to change. But this needs to change in our country. This needs to change. That needs to change, but not me. The focus is on change. We need change. But when faced with the need for individual change, the message loses its appeal. And people in Jesus' day were not fundamentally different than people today who love the message of change. In Jesus' day, the people loved the message of change. They, The Jews were living under Roman occupation. They were expecting a Messiah to come and deliver them from this oppression. The Romans had come in to Israel, just as they had to many places, and were occupying the nation and were running the nation. And the Jews wanted deliverance. They wanted change. We need change in our nation. We need the change that God has promised in their mind that these Romans will be violently removed from the land. There will be a military victory and they will have freedom. The people wanted change. In fact, one of the 12 apostles was a man named Simon the Zealot. And he had been devoted to violently opposing the Romans prior to becoming a follower of Jesus. There was a group of Jews, all the Jews generally wanted the Romans gone, but there was a group within the the larger community called the Zealots who were devoted to military action against the Romans to get them out of the country. So the people want to change. And so here comes Jesus performing these amazing signs of healing, teaching with authority, and he's sparking a lot of interest that he might be the Messiah. And of course, we know that he is. 
At the time, the people don't know, is this the Messiah? And in their mind, they were fixated on the idea that the Messiah would come and immediately get rid of the Roman occupiers and free the Jewish nation. And so here this man comes, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's doing these wonderful signs. And they're, they're, in their mind is he's going to bring about that change. He's going to bring about the change that we need. And if the people, if the people of the day were planning Jesus's PR campaign and his his message, they would have made that the focus. Here is how Jesus is going to bring about change for us. And so when we come to our text in Mark chapter six, we see that Jesus is beginning to send out his representatives to the Jewish nation, the twelve apostles. Look at verse seven, where he says, where it says, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and what? And gave them authority over unclean spirits. Jesus here is commissioning the twelve apostles to be his official representatives to the Jewish nation, and also, of course, to the Gentiles, as we'll see as the gospel progresses. He's commissioning them to be his representatives, and as such, he's giving them the power, this is the key, the power to demonstrate their authority. That's the key with the casting out of demons. He's giving them the, the power to demonstrate the authority to speak on Jesus's behalf. And miracles and these signs are often misunderstood by Christians. But as R.C. Sproul points out, the fundamental purpose of miracles, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, was to authenticate, authenticate agents of revelation. It's to show that the person who is bringing this message is from God. You remember the story of Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh and, and Moses says, how will the people know, you know, and who sent me? And he, and he gives Moses and Aaron these wonderful signs to perform so that it will be clear that the message that Moses and Aaron are bringing is from God. And, and Jesus here gives his apostles the authority to perform these miracles so that it will be clear that they are coming with the message of Jesus. The signs were subservient to the message. Their main purpose was to preach the healings and signs and the casting out of demons were meant to authenticate that message. So here come these 12 men, all right? They're sent out groups of two. They're crisscrossing the land of Israel. They're proclaiming the message of Jesus, confirmed by these signs. And they come to a people who are longing for change, people who are longing for deliverance from Rome. They're longing for political change. They're longing for, for, for some change to happen outside of them so that they can have a better life. And the apostles come and they preach their message. And their message was, in fact, change. Yes, they brought the message of change. But it was probably not the change that most of the people were looking for. Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You know, if those those PR people had asked Jesus prior to sending out the 12, Jesus, what, what will your campaign slogan be? We could imagine him saying, well, it's going to be change. And they could have responded, yes, that's exactly what we need. We need change in our society. We need a group, this group to be changed. We need the Romans to be changed. We need Herod to be changed. We need maybe even these religious leaders to be changed. We, we need this change. Thank you, Jesus. But then you can imagine Jesus having to correct these people and saying, no, 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 no. The change that needs to happen is not all those things out there. The change that needs to happen is with you. The change that needs to happen is within every individual. That's the required change that, that we need here. 
People love the message of change on a large scale because it doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't cost me anything to tell others to change. It doesn't cost me anything to say, uh, well, this group should change and that should change and, and then things will be better for me. But it will cost me something to change the habits in my life. And when a people look to outside forces to do the change for them, they fail to see that the main problem with any nation, with any society, is with the people themselves. The government, these other groups are just expressions of the problem with the people themselves. For example, the government can't fix the family. That's going to come when men change and become devoted to their wives and children and lead. When women change and focused on piety and modesty in their family. It's not going to come from the government solving the problems. Change has to happen from the individual level. So the apostles preached the message that Jesus preached. Change. But the word they used was repent. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Much to the people's disappointment, perhaps, they didn't come out and proclaim that Jesus was overthrowing the Romans. No, they said, Jesus is here, and the call goes straight to your heart. You change. The people were much like those looking for change in our nation. They wanted to change. They wanted the change to come from others, but not themselves. But Jesus came and preached a message of personal repentance, personal change, and he commissioned the apostles to preach that message. Any discussion about Christianity should focus on those two words, repent and believe. These were the words that Jesus used to start his ministry. Mark records it like this. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So let us consider the message of change, this message of repent very briefly now. I want to briefly define it. What does it mean to repent? And then I'll give you three reasons why people should repent. And then we'll conclude with two erroneous views of repentance. One that purports to be Christian and the other from the modern secular philosophy of our day. So let's define it. Three reasons why you should repent, people should repent, and then two erroneous views. So first, let's define what it means to repent. It is to change. Change is a good word. It's to turn around. It's to do a 180. Let me read to you the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I'll read this definition of what is repentance unto life, and then I'll summarize it to make it even shorter. So question 87, what is repentance unto life? Answer, Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So there are a few key elements to that biblical definition. One, it's a grace. Repentance is a grace. It's a gift from God. Two, there's a sense of sin. You understand your sin. Three, you understand God's mercy in Christ. You see that it's not just you have, you're lost in your sin, there's no hope. You see Christ. Four, there's a grief and hatred of your sin. You're not just aware of it, but you're sorry over it and you hate your sin. And five, there's a turning from sin to obedience. So if I had to summarize it like we've done with our children, if I had to summarize repent, I would say it is sorrow and change. Sorrow and change. To repent is to have a godly genuine sorrow for our own personal sin and a godly desire to change and start walking in obedience to God's law. 
And all this comes through the grace of God via the good news of Jesus Christ. So the message was repent. Be sorry for your own sin, not primarily that of your neighbors or that of the Romans or that of this group or that group, but be sorry for your own sin. Have a godly sorrow for your own sin and change. And I don't think a political campaign in our day would do too well with that message that you need to change. You need to be sorry for your sin and you need to change the course that you're on. John the Baptist, of course, made clear the connection between repentance and a changed life when he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Repentance leads to a changed life because it is a turning from sin. That's a definition. Sorrow and change. Now, let me give you three brief reasons why people should repent. Why should people change? The apostles went out and preached that people should repent. There's more than these three, but let me give you three reasons why people should repent. Number one, they're on the wrong path. You know the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I generally agree with that saying. I'm not a fan of changing things just for the sake of changing them if they're working. But the problem that we have is that we are broken. And Jesus understood this. The problem with humanity is that we, each one of us, have gone astray like lost sheep. We've gone astray like lost sheep. We have placed other things above God in our lives. We have broken God's law a thousand times over. So people should repent and change in order to get off this path. People are on the wrong path. We are broken and we need to change course. That's the first reason why people should repent. Number two, they're he- people are heading for hell. Because of our sin, because of the path that we are on, apart from repentance and faith in Jesus, we are heading for hell. Modern man, and I'm sure ancient man as well, minimizes the judgment of God and the doctrine of hell. He says, well, I don't want to believe in that doctrine. But Jesus, the most truthful and loving person that ever lived, spoke more about hell than about heaven. And I like how Rico Tice put it. He said, Jesus is the most loving and truthful person who ever lived, yet he spoke repeatedly about hell. That should give us pause before rejecting the idea. Jesus cared about people perfectly, and he warned of the dangers of hell. So people should repent, number two, should change, because otherwise they are heading to hell. Number three, third reason people should repent is because they cannot behold the beauty of Jesus without repenting. They cannot behold the beauty of Jesus without repenting. Now, the first two reasons are undoubtedly true and connected with this, but this is the greatest reason people should repent. Without repentance, a person cannot come to behold the beauty of Jesus in faith. You cannot hold on to your sin and come to Jesus at the same time. We must let go of sin. We must turn from sin. I remember the illustration, I believe it was from Paul Washer, I heard years ago, of a, man, a father coming home from, from work, or, and he has, in his, he has his, his briefcase and his bag and all these things in his hand from work, and he comes home, and his little son comes running to greet him, to embrace him. In order for him to embrace his son and hold him and love him, he has to set down his briefcase, his suitcase, his bags, his coat. He cannot embrace his son if he does not let go of those other things. We have to let go of our sin 
if we are going to embrace Jesus as our Savior. People, unless they repent, can never know Jesus. They may pretend to, but they will never know him in truth. They cannot be his follower. They will not repent of their sin. Those are three reasons why people should repent. Now, as we conclude, let's look at two erroneous views of repentance. One that purports to be Christian and one from the secular philosophy of our day. So first, the erroneous view of repentance that claims to be Christian. Let me start with a quote here from R.C. Sproul. Much of what passes for evangelism evangelism today concerns me. People say, if you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, then come forward to the altar, raise your hand, sign a card, or pray the sinner's prayer. All those techniques together add up to cheap grace, because what is noticeably absent from these attempts to evangelize is any serious call to repentance. No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting his trust in Christ alone. This is how our Lord himself did evangelism. He announced the gospel. Then he said, in essence, your response must be to repent and believe. All right, that's R.C. Sproul summarizing what the Bible teaches about repentance. However, there has arisen a group of theologians, quote unquote, who argue that this is wrong, that this call to repent is wrong. They say it is wrong to emphasize repentance in salvation. These people could be deemed, we could call them the anti-lordship salvation people. Now, Zane Hodges is one of them, and he writes this. He says, faith alone, not repentance in faith, is the sole condition for justification and eternal life. So he says, just faith, not repentance in faith. You're adding to salvation by grace if you say people must repent. In other words, people only have to believe, he says. They don't need to repent in order to be saved. But the problem with this is a misunderstanding of what genuine belief, what genuine faith is. And before I address that, let me read several passages here, just verse, uh, short verses here from the Bible about repentance as it relates to salvation. So just listen to these. Mark 1.4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 13.5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 24.47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 11.18, there's many more, but I'll end with this one. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, in all these passages and more, repentance and faith are always tied together with salvation. Acts 11.18 is referred to as repentance that leads to life. You see, you cannot have eternal life without repentance. It's the repentance that leads there. So to say that you can be saved with just faith and no repentance is to go against this passage. It's the repentance that leads to life. The ESV uh, Systematic Study Bible, Systematic Theology Study Bible put, puts it like this. The faith that saves is a penitent faith. The repentance that saves is a believing repentance. So the faith that saves, faith that saves, it's a penitent faith. And the repentance 
that saves is a believing repentance. The problem with Hodges and others is that they misunderstand what true faith is. Faith and repentance always go together. As highlighted in the, in the Acts 20, 21, where Paul is preaching, he says that what he did in his ministry, he testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, they go together. They go together. You cannot have one without the other. It's a, mis- it's a misunderstanding of what true faith is to say that you can trust in Jesus without turning from sin. Let me try to give an illustration of this. Let's say you're, you're in a plane, right? And the plane's engines are down and this plane is going to crash. All right. And let's say when you got on that plane, you believe you took a kite with you and you believed this kite. If I jump out of the plane and I hold this kite, this kite will keep me, will lead me safely to the ground. This kite will act like my parachute. All right. It's a $10 kite you got at Walmart. That's what you believe. This kite can save me if I need to jump out of the plane. Now, in that plane, there's a parachute that can actually save you if you jump out of the plane. Now, you have to make your choice between the two. You can't continue to hold on to your kite, just like we talked about earlier with the other illustration. You can't hold on to your kite and use the parachute at the same time. You have to renounce the kite and say, this kite cannot save me. I renounce it. I turn from that and I I put on the parachute, jump out of the plane, and I can land safely. You cannot have faith in Jesus without turning from your sin. You can't put on the parachute without saying, I'm going to get rid of this kite. Okay? You you can't have faith in Jesus without repentance because repentance is turning from trusting yourself. Repentance is turning from your sin of unbelief. Right? How do you how do you come to faith in Christ if you don't repent of unbelief in Christ? And all sin is an expression of our unbelief in Christ, the lack of faith. So you cannot have faith without repentance. Repentance doesn't mean you make yourself perfect before coming to Jesus. But it does mean that you renounce your sin and turn from it with a complete and wholehearted commitment to follow Jesus in obedience. So that's a a purportedly Christian view that is erroneous regarding repentance, that Repentance is not necessary for salvation, but only faith is. That's an erroneous view of faith because true saving faith involves a commitment to Jesus that necessitates a turning from all else. A saving faith is a penitent safe faith, and a saving repentance is a believing repentance. Lastly, the second erroneous view of repentance that I want us to consider this morning is the modern secular view of selfhood that denies the biblical the need for biblical repentance. In Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he provides a sweeping look at many of the modern secular philosophies that are dominant today. And it's interesting to note that one thing he speaks of is expressive individualism that has indeed come to dominate our modern world, our, our culture today. And you begin to see this as you look around in the way people talk about sin and sexual sin and and, and there are, everything comes down to, I should be able to express myself, what my true self is. And Truman traces many of these thoughts to past thinkers. And for example, he notes how Rousseau spoke of the notion that the individual is most authentic when acting out in public those desires and feelings that characterize his inner psychological 
life. So we are most authentic, and that's what kind of has become the, the catchphrase. Hey, people need to be authentic. People need to be who they are. That's what people are truly free when they're being who they are. So when you look at uh, sinful movement, like the transgender movement and, and the, these, these sins that are, that are focused on people just living however they want, Truman notes that it is the inner voice here, freed from any and all external influences, even from chromosomes, even from how your body is, how God designed it. It's this inner voice that in this mindset shapes identity for the transgender person or anybody who's looking for identity, that their own identity is what defines them. It's, it's a position consistent with Rousseau's idea that personal authenticity is rooted in the notion that nature free from heteronymous cultural constraints and selfhood. So, so nature freed from those things and selfhood, understanding that how I see myself is, is, is the most important thing, conceived of as an inner psychological conviction are the real guides to true identity. So in other words, the very idea of repenting and changing to conform to a standard outside of ourselves, biblically the law of God, is taboo in our culture. <coughs> Because according to the modern cult of the self, there is no external standard to which our thoughts and conduct must conform to. The only standard is being true to yourself. That's what it means to be authentic in our modern secular thought. You have to be true to yourself. That leads to ridiculous, sinful, and disturbing statements such as, I am a, a woman trapped in a man's body. You hear, you hear people say that in our culture because they have elevated their own personal idea of what they want to the ultimate standard. And so you're only being authentic when you act out what you think you should be. And so the idea of repentance is absolutely foreign from this because the greatest enemy in this modern mindset is that anybody should tell anybody to be anything other than what they want to be. That's the greatest taboo. To say to anybody, you can't be who you think you are is the worst thing in this this modern cult of of the authentic self that whatever I feel like I am that's what I am. And so this idea that the worst thing that we can do is to have any sort of standard outside of people goes against the biblical command to repent. And this is contrary clearly to what Jesus and the apostles taught. Right Colossians 3:5 through 8. That I'm going to read that passage. It doesn't teach us that hey, you should just do whatever you think is best. The most important thing for you is to just to think however you want to think and don't let anybody or anything outside of you define who you should be and how you should live. Because the greatest factor in this, in this fallen uh, humanistic mindset is whatever you think is best for you, that's what you need to do. That's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You see, the Bible teaches people need to change. Our modern culture teaches you don't need to change. The problem is with other people telling you to change. And you need to just express yourself however you feel, and then you'll be authentic, and then you'll be living free, and then you'll be freed from these, these old ways of, of repentance and having to change and conform to any standard. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that people should repent. It is the message that Jesus proclaimed. It is the message that he commissioned his apostles to preach. It is the message which has transformed the world. It is the message that is inextricably tied to salvation by grace through faith. As we discussed, repentance is not added. It's not an extra part of Christianity. Charles Spurgeon said this, True belief and true repentance are twins. It would be idle to attempt to say which is born first. All the spokes of a wheel move at once when the wheel moves. And so all the graces commence action when when regeneration is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Repentance, however, there must be. There must be repentance. If there is regeneration, if there is a new birth, if someone becomes a Christian, there is always repentance and faith. Contrary to what Hodges and others will say, that well, there can just be faith and no repentance. The message is change. Jesus has brought change. He is bringing change, and he will continue to bring great change to the world. But it will be done through individuals heeding his call for personal change, personal repentance. And so the charge is repent and believe in the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for the message of repentance that people should repent. I pray, Lord, that that message would go forth as we read in Isaiah, that your word would bring about great change, would produce its intended result instead of the false message of no need for repentance, whether it's coming from those claiming to be Christian or from modern secular philosophy, that those messages would, would crumble and that the biblical message, the only message of true hope and change would prevail the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has defeated death. He went to the cross to pay for the sins of his people. He rose victorious. And all those who turn from sin, who repent and trust in Jesus, will be saved. That that message would go forth with power and conviction throughout this nation and throughout the world. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.